Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. I'm glad that you're here for the start of this um, new study, J.C. Ryle's A Call to Prayer. You know, we're going to take a little bit of a different approach uh, with this study. Usually you come in and you find an outline that's, you know, full to the brim, front and back. You know, I've detailed the, uh, the section. We're going to slow down a little bit in this study and, and just take this little book, one little section at a time. And what I'll probably do is identify kind of the outline of the book, but also just read uh, J.C. Ryle and then pause to make a few comments and we could have some discussions. This uh, change of pace, I think, will be nice for us. This isn't a, a heavy study, uh, theologically speaking, academically speaking, but it is a very important study. Uh, we need to be people of prayer, and, and J.C. Ryle does a great job at calling uh, Christians to pray. Uh, so that is what we'll do. You, you'll, you probably notice that there, there aren't chapter breaks in this book. There aren't even section headings. And so I kind of had a good time just reading the book. This is the kind of thing I enjoy doing. I, don't, I had a good time reading the book and just looking for the structure. And there is a clear structure to this book. And so my copy has Roman numerals and, and, and you know, little outline notations throughout it. And so I'll draw your attention to these things as we go. Let's open in a word of prayer. Oh, Melissa, did you have something? Go ahead. Was it originally a gospel tract? Why am I thinking that it maybe was originally a sermon? I can't remember where I read that. Oh, that's good. Good question. Yes, let's open in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, do help us this morning. Help us also in this study. I thank you for um, the very pointed words from, uh, from J.C. Ryle that we're about to encounter as he calls us to be people of prayer. Uh, Lord, I do ask that you would humble us, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would enable us to practice our faith, our religion, not only in public, but also in private, that you would enable us more and more to come to you, uh, not in a superficial way, but, in, but from the heart, O oh God, and that we would be found, uh, Lord, coming to you and speaking to you in prayer often. Uh, Lord, do use this study to, to mature us and, and to Conform us more into the image of Christ. It's in His name that we pray. Amen. J.C. Ryle, uh, you probably know, was an Anglican minister, uh, ministering back in the 1800s. He is appreciated by a lot of Reformed folk uh, because he is Calvinistic. We don't share the same ecclesiology. There's going to be differences between us and, and Ryle in terms of our tradition. Um, but he's a Calvinistic minister, a faithful minister, one who was true to the Word of God. His commentaries are greatly loved uh, because of just the warmth and the, the attention he gives to practical application. Um, I think one of the reasons I decided to go with this book was that I've, I've been so enjoying J.C. Ryle's commentary on the Gospel of Luke. It's not an academic commentary. It just has that quality that I described to you. It's filled with warmth and practical application. I thought, we need to read more J.C. Ryle. And then this book came up, and I thought, we need to be people of prayer and more consistent in prayer. So let's go through this study together. It wasn't too long ago that we did a study on the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember that? And we used a video curriculum from Ligonier Ministries. So we, we are talking about the topic of prayer quite often. That study on the Lord's Prayer, obviously it was focused on uh, the prayer commonly called the Lord's Prayer. And 
just kind of teaching us how to pray according to those petitions of the Lord's Prayer and what each of them mean. Uh, but here we just have more of a general call to be people of prayer. The first section of the book really is identified, uh, characterized maybe I should say, by this question, do you pray? I have one question to offer you, Ryle says. It is contained in three words, do you pray? And he really does spend the remainder of this section, pages 3 through 14 in the copy that I'm using to tease that out. The question is one that none but you can answer, he says. Whether you attend public worship or not, your minister knows. Whether you have family prayers in your house or not, your relations know. But whether you pray in private or not, it is a matter between yourself and God. And then Ryle goes on to plead with us to be people of prayer. I beseech you in all affection to attend to the subject I bring before you. Do not say that my question is too close, um, too, too prying, maybe we would say. If your heart is right in the sight of God, there is nothing in it to make you afraid. Do not turn off my question by replying that you say your prayers. It is one thing to say your prayers and another thing to pray. Do not tell me that my question is unnecessary. Listen to me for a few minutes and I will show you good reasons for asking it. Uh, when Ryle makes con- this comment here, it is one thing to say your prayers and another to pray. What do you think he means? Anyone? Wrote prayers. Um, you know, maybe reciting uh, the Lord's Prayer from memory, but with no heart in it, with no thought to it. Uh, maybe also just praying in a dutiful manner. Uh, maybe having your... Go ahead, Melissa. Sure. Uh, he's calling us to deeper prayer. I think it is good for Christians to say little prayers throughout the day, but they need to say them from the heart. And you know how we can fall into these routines and these ruts where we maybe pray before mealtime. And it's good that we pray before mealtime, but if we're not careful, it just becomes a dead tradition. And so I think he is calling us to be people of prayer, that we would go into our private place and pray deeply, like you say, Melissa. Uh, and, and even when we do say short prayers throughout the day, that they would be deep prayers from, from the heart. So, in this whole section, he is asking whether we pray. I ask whether you pray because prayer is absolutely needful to man's salvation. I identify that as the first major um, subsection here. He says, prayer is absolutely needful, we might say necessary, to a man's salvation. And I appreciate the, the, the insights he brings here. I say absolutely needful, and I say so advisedly. I am not speaking now of infants or idiots. I am not settling the state of the heathen. I know that where little is given, there little will be required. I speak especially of those who call themselves Christians in a land like our own. And of such I say, no man or woman can expect to be saved who does not pray. Um, Does that bother you that he says that? That no man could expect to be saved who does not pray? Melissa? We use that word as an insult. I think it was used more as a technical word um, uh, in those days. Yes. Somebody who who doesn't have the mental capacity to, um, well, like infants, you know, even. So he's saying there are exceptions, just like our confession makes, you know, that the Lord is able to save those who don't have the, the capacity to have faith. He can do these kinds of things. So he's saying besides these exceptions, uh, he is saying Ordinarily, it is needful for men to pray 
if they are to be saved. And I asked you, does this bother you? Because we do like to emphasize the doctrine of salvation uh, through faith alone. And, and it's not by works. We're not saved by our praying. But here, uh, Ryle does clarify. He says, I hold salvation by grace as strongly as anyone. I would gladly offer a free and full pardon to the greatest sinner that ever lived. I would not hesitate to stand by his dying bed and say, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, even now, and you shall be saved. But that a man can have salvation without asking for it, I cannot see it in the Bible. That a man will receive pardon of his sins, who will not so much as lift up his heart inwardly and say, Lord Jesus, give it to me. This I cannot find. I can find that nobody will be saved by his prayers, but I cannot find that without prayer anyone will be saved. Isn't that a good statement? So are we saved by our prayers? Is it because we pray that we are saved? No. But can we be saved without praying? No. We need to cry out to God. We need to ask for the forgiveness of our sins. We need to, we need to ask Him for salvation. You know, um, it is common in reform circles to criticize uh, the practice so common in many churches, and that is to respond to an altar call and to come forward and to say the sinner's prayer and thus to be considered saved. You know, Is that what Ryle is here proposing? That, that this is the way in which people are to profess their faith in Christ through coming forward and saying a sinner's prayer? Is that what he's saying? No, he'll clarify throughout this section that that is not what he is proposing. But he's making a very good point that to come to Christ, you need to pray. You have to pray. You have to confess sin to the Lord and turn from it in the heart. And, and, you, and you have to ask God to have mercy upon you. Can you think of a, an example of Scripture that could be used as an illustration of this? Anyone? Believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. Okay, a good... So, yeah, is it Romans 10.9 there? Um, any other text? Calling people to turn and, and, and to believe and to call upon the Lord. I even think of that account of the, the thief on the cross. The one reviled Jesus. But the other cried out to Him, right, from the cross. And, and, and there Jesus was before Him, physically of course. And he, he pleaded that Christ would have mercy and that He would receive Him in His kingdom. He was in that moment praying to Jesus, was He not? Uh, we don't see him face to face, but I think it's a good illustration of this. So, I continue. It is not absolutely needful to salvation that a man should read the Bible. A man may have no learning, or be blind, and yet have Christ in his heart. It is not absolutely needful that a man should hear public preaching of the gospel. He may live where the gospel is not preached. Um, in other words, he may live where there is no church to minister the word of God faithfully. Or he may be bedridden or deaf, but the same thing cannot be said about prayer. It is absolutely needful to salvation that a man should pray. Is Ryle here saying that we could be saved apart from the gospel? No, that's not what he's saying. He's making the point that people might not have copies of the Bible in their home. They might not have the ability to read them. They might not live in a land where there is an established church where they can come and sit under the ministry of the Word, the reading and preaching of the Word of God. Um, but all men can pray. And if anyone is to be saved, they must believe the gospel that is preached to them, and they must cry out to God in prayer for forgiveness and for salvation. There is no royal road, I hear, continue to preach Ryle. Preach Ryle. That's what I'm doing, actually. I hear, continue to read Ryle. There is no royal road either to health or learning. Princes and kings, poor men and peasants, all alike must attend to the wants of their own bodies and their own minds. 
No man can eat, drink, or sleep by proxy. No man can get the alphabet learned for him by another. All these are things which everybody must do for himself, or they will not be done at all. I do like the imagery here. Uh, you are responsible for your own spiritual well-being, your own soul. And so he is calling us to do that very thing, to be people of prayer. Just as it is with the mind and the body, so it is with the soul. There are certain things absolutely needful to the soul's health and well-being. Each must attend to these things for himself. Each must repent for himself. Each must apply to Christ for himself. And for himself, each must speak to God and pray. You must do it for yourself, for by, it, for by nobody else can it be done. To the prayerless, to be prayerless is to be without God, without Christ, without grace, without hope, and without heaven. It is to be on the road to hell. Now can you wonder that I ask the question, do you pray? So these introductory words are very, are very strong. They're very strong. Do you think he is calling into question whether or not somebody could be saved if their prayer life is weak? Is that what he is doing? No. He's calling us to have a strong prayer life, but he's just beginning with the point that this is how we come to be saved. It is by turning from our sins, confessing them to the Lord, and crying out to God for salvation. We must call upon the name of the Lord. We must call out to God in prayer. Now, of course, there's more to be said. These should profess their faith in, in the waters of baptism. Uh, these should join themselves to the church ordinarily and, and partake of the means of grace there. Uh, one of them being the Lord's Supper. Of course, all of these things should be said, but Ryle's point is, is valid from the outset. Again, I ask whether you pray, because a habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. So here is the second major uh, sub-point of this section. He wants to demonstrate to us that the habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. Uh, what will Christians do? Uh, what kind of fruit will they produce? What kind of lifestyle will they live? Well, we could say many things about that, but he's saying one of the surest marks is Christians will be people of prayer. Now, I think this is the longest subsection in the section we are considering today, and so I'm not going to read uh, it all in its entirety. Um, but I'll give you an overview of the subpoints uh, that are made in the section. Uh, here's what I did. I, I went above almost every paragraph in this book, and I just kind of wrote a little summary statement of what that paragraph is teaching. And in your outline, if you want to fill in your outline some more, you could probably write these down under point 1B. So, the habit of prayer is one of the surest marks of a true Christian. First, Ryle makes the point that infants cry naturally. When an infant is born in, into the world, what do they do? What must they do? They, they cry. And building upon that observation, um, Ryle makes the point that so it is with all who are adopted children of God. Uh, those who are adopted as children of God, those who are enlivened by the Holy Spirit and drawn to faith in Christ, they are going to have this natural desire to cry out to God in prayer. I'll now read from uh, the second major paragraph here, the second paragraph on page 6. This is one of the common marks of all the elect of God. They cry unto Him day and night, Luke 18.1. 
The Holy Spirit who makes them new creatures works in them the feeling of adoption and makes them cry, Abba, Father, Romans 8.15. The Lord Jesus, when He quickens them, gives them a voice and a tongue and says to them, Be dumb no more. God has no dumb children. Uh, Here He is using that word dumb again, not as an insult, but in reference to someone who is unable to speak. It is as much a part of their new nature to pray as it is of a child to cry. They see their need of mercy and grace. They feel their emptiness and weakness. They cannot do otherwise than they do. They must pray. And so, here Ryle is saying this is going to be one of the true marks, one of the, one of the most obvious marks of a true Christian. Uh, because true Christians have been born again. They have been given new birth, new life. They've been adopted into God's family, and so they will have this impulse to cry out to their Father in heaven. Ryle then notes that in the Bible, God's people are always found praying. Uh, That is what that last paragraph on page 6, which spills over onto page 7, is about. He's saying this is characteristic of all of God's people in the Bible. He also considers church history in the first full paragraph on page 7. And and he he talks about having read of the lives of many eminent Christians who've been on earth since the the Bible days. Uh, Some were rich, some were poor, some were learned, some were unlearned. Some of them were Episcopalians and some Christians of other names. Some were Calvinists and some were Arminians. Some have loved to use a liturgy and some use none. Well, they all use liturgy. Let's just settle that right now. But one thing I see they all had in common. They all have been men of prayer. He then mentions the mission field and how uh, new converts will uh, naturally, or maybe we should say supernaturally, pray. He then goes on at the end of page 7 to note that uh, sometimes men do pray, and yet they are not saved. So this is one of the surest marks of a true Christian, and yet... It is also possible for men to pray, but not from the heart and not sincerely, so that they might appear to have this mark, but in due time they are found to not be truly in Christ Jesus. I'll read that paragraph at the bottom of page 7. I do not deny that a man may pray without heart and without sincerity. I do not for a moment pretend to say that the mere fact of a person's praying proves is everything about his soul. As in every other part of religion, so also in this, there may be deception and hypocrisy. So just because you see a man praying does not mean that he has true faith in his heart. Nevertheless, the point to stand, those who have true faith, who have been reconciled to God the Father, who have been adopted as His children, will be marked by prayer. All who are saved will pray is really the point that he returns to at the top of page 8. I'll read this as well because it's such a good paragraph. But this I do say that not praying is a clear proof that a man is not yet a true Christian. He cannot really feel his sins. He cannot love God. He cannot feel himself a debtor to Christ. He cannot long after holiness. He cannot desire heaven. He has yet to be born again. He has yet to be made a new creature He may boast confidently of election, grace, faith, hope, and knowledge, and deceive ignorant people. But you may rest assured, it is all vain talk if he does not pray. So these are strong words. And as your pastor right now, I'm 
contemplating whether or not I should soften them a little bit and comfort you and encourage you. <laughs> because it may be that right now you're thinking, my prayer life is pitiful. And is this me? Am I one of these who only practices an outward form of religion? Am I really saved? Uh, there is some benefit to allowing questions like that just to remain, honestly, and for you to be maybe shaken by these these pointed words. Why is my prayer life so pitiful? Why am I not a man or a woman of prayer? Is there something wrong with my soul? And if you're asking those questions, I would urge you to, to make changes, to humble yourself before the Lord and to run to Him in prayer as His child adopted through faith in Christ and by His grace alone. Uh, but to soften this a little bit, I think here, Ryle is of course thinking of those who simply do not pray and have no desire to pray. And this would be an evidence that they are not true Christians. Ryle was ministering to a culture um, where there was a lot of nominal Christianity, you know, a, a lot of nominal Christianity within the Church of England. Uh, people thought that they were Christian because they were English, you know, and they would attend church dutifully, but not from the heart. And they would, many would go through the motions of religion, but not sincerely. So you can hear him trying to wake these people up from their, from their sleep. You're, you're practicing a dead and heartless form of religion, and one of the proofs of it is that you don't care to pray to God. If you loved God from the heart, would you not want to go to Him in prayer and commune with Him? And of course, we have a similar problem in our day and age. Many people practicing a kind of dead and lifeless form of Christianity, and it is good for these to be awakened to. Prayer, he goes on to say, is one of the surest evidences of the real work of the Spirit. A habit of hearty private prayer is one of the most satisfactory that can be named. A man may preach from false motives. Oh, this is a great point right here, I think. A man may preach from false motives. A man may write books and make fine speeches and seem diligent in good works and yet be a Judas Iscariot. But a man seldom goes into his closet and pours out his soul before God in secret unless he is earnest, unless he is sincere. The Lord Himself has set His stamp on prayer as the best proof of a true conversion. When He sent Ananias to Saul in Damascus, He gave him no other evidence of His charge, of his change of heart than this. Behold, He prayeth. And here He cites Acts 9.11. You'll find Him praying. I know that much may go on in a man's mind before he is brought to pray. He may have many convictions, desires, wishes, feelings, intentions, resolutions, hopes, and fears, but all these things are very uncertain evidences. They are to be found in ungodly people and often, coming, and often come to nothing. In many a case they are not more lasting than the morning cloud and the dew that passeth away. A real hearty prayer coming from a broken and contrite spirit is worth all these things put together. So this will be the surest evidence that the Holy Spirit has truly enlivened someone when they are drawn to God and moved to pray to Him from the heart and especially in secret, especially in private. Christ warned about this, didn't He? About those who, who like to make long prayers on the street corners, you know, so that they can be heard by others. And here Ryle is saying that that's not an evidence, um, you know, someone praying in public is obviously not an evidence that their heart is not right before God, but <clears throat> very rarely will someone go to God in prayer in private if there is not some sincerity 
uh, within them, for there is no room there to receive praise from men. They do it out of a sincere love for God. Let me drop down now to the bottom of page 9. Here he says, basically, that there are really good reasons why your pastor continues to emphasize the importance of prayer. Uh, Let me read this section. Never be surprised if you hear ministers of the gospel dwelling much on the importance of prayer. This is the point we want to bring you to. We We want to know that you pray. Your views of doctrine may be correct. Your love of Protestantism may be warm and unmistakable. But, this, but still, this may be nothing more than head knowledge and party spirit. We want to know whether you are actually acquainted with the throne of grace and whether you can speak to God as well as speak about God. Uh, that is a very good word of warning Is it important to have sound doctrine, brothers and sisters? Of course. Uh, Is it it good uh, to be a part of a good tradition that is firmly rooted in Scripture, a confessional tradition? Uh, We would say, yes, that that is good. But here Ryle, without demeaning the importance of all of that, uh, presses us further and and says that the the real aim here should be communion with God. The real aim here should be a sincere faith, a sincere love for God and for one another, if our sound doctrine is not producing that within us, then what is it? What is it for? Uh, and, and, and I think you can see why, why men and women need to hear this. Even those who are very zealous about uh, sound and true doctrine uh, can be greatly deceived and really miss the mark. Why did Christ come? except to reconcile us to the Father so that God might get the glory in all things. And so Ryle concludes this section, Do you wish to find out whether you are a true Christian? Then rest assured that my question is of the very first importance. Do you pray? I'm going to pause there before taking you through uh, section C in our outline and in this this section uh, to see if you have any questions or comments about what Ryle has said thus far. Chad. Um, as a matter of personal piety, so I've heard it said that a man should pray even when he doesn't feel like it. Um, but you can err on, so you either err on, you're praying dead prayers, it's just a tradition before a meal or something, or you don't pray at all because you don't feel like it. So which, which is the better discipline or preferable? There are going to be times and maybe many times where we we know we ought to pray and we don't feel like it. And what I would say is that we are to pray even though we don't feel like it, trusting that the Lord is in the process going to warm our hearts towards Him. And maybe another really good practice to have is to not go straight to prayer, but to first open the Word of God and and to to digest God's Word. And, and, And even before you do that, of course, pray that the Lord would give you insight into the Word and that He would warm your heart by the Word. So, the very first words of your prayer might be, Lord, forgive me, I don't feel like praying. Lord, forgive me, I don't feel like praying. Lord, forgive me, my, my love for you has grown cold. Uh, for, forgive my, my wicked heart uh, and change it even now. And then you press on in prayer and you persist in prayer and, and you seek to lay a hold of God in prayer in this way. 
Um, yes, if, if we uh, refuse to pray because we don't feel like it, then some may never pray. Uh, but in, instead, we're to lay a hold of God in prayer and confess our sin in prayer and trust that He will warm our hearts. Yeah. Yes? Yes. So I'll repeat your, your statement, Gloria. There, there might be times where you feel like you can't pray because you're so overwhelmed or grief-stricken, and yet the Scriptures talk about the Holy Spirit making intercession for us. And we know that Christ intercedes on our behalf. And it may be that in those times, um, reciting something like the Lord's Prayer might be very helpful. There is nothing wrong with reciting the Lord's Prayer and saying nothing more. Um, but what you're describing here is not heartless prayer. You know, if you're, if you're grief-stricken and you just don't have the words to pray, you can pray the words that Christ taught us to pray and do it from the heart. You know, and just confess again to the Lord your brokenness and your need for, for strength. And that is true and authentic prayer in that moment. Yes. Trusting that Christ intercedes for you and that the Holy Spirit ministers to you as well. Good. Any other any other thoughts or questions? These are, again, strong words that Ryle is pressing upon us. If you don't pray, if you've never prayed, and if you don't pray, and if you have no desire at all to pray, it might be an evidence that you have not been born again. Um, you understand how this works, brothers and sisters. You understand our doctrine of salvation. Are we saved through faith in Christ alone? Yes. Do we merit our salvation in any way, shape, or form? No. Do we merit our salvation by being people of prayer? No, we do not. But people who have been truly born again are going to want to pray. And we can examine our own lives and, and, and say, is there this evidence here? And if, if the answer is, no, I don't pray, then it's going to affect not your salvation if you have it, but it will affect your sense of assurance, your sense of confidence. Why is this not present in my life? Why is it lacking? And if that question is in your mind right now, I would say what you need to do today on the Lord's Day is repent. <laughs> you need to t repent of the sin of prayerlessness and go to the Lord in prayer and, and do so regularly from this time forward. And in this way, it is not that you will earn your salvation, but what you might earn or gain in the process is a deeper sense of assurance that you are truly a child of God given the fruit that you're now producing. Ryan. Yeah, in Matthew 9, Jesus told them to pray like this. Not necessarily just to pray it, but to pray like this. So is it inherently sinful not to engage in the Lord's Prayer through the petitions on a regular basis? I mean, it seems like an imperative from Christ at that point. Yes, yeah, so Christ, and I'll repeat it for the recording, Christ taught us to pray like this, and then we have the Lord's Prayer. So is it sinful to not pray through the petitions of the Lord's Prayer regularly? Um, we should not disregard the Lord's Prayer. We ought to use it as a pattern for our prayer. I do not think that what Christ means is that we are to, every time we pray, walk through the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, because... I think there are occasions where we might just simply need to get to something with God, you know, that is pressing upon us. We pray with someone who is in some dire need, and, and you just, 
you, you quickly go to the petition at hand. I don't think it is required that we always pray through the petitions, but also a Christian should not ignore what Christ has taught us to pray because there we have those essential categories of prayer and there they are put in a, a particular order. And so I would say it is, um, it is good, it is wise to pray through the petitions of the Lord's Prayer regularly and in private. But this does not mean that other, other uh, methods of prayer or approaches to prayer are forbidden. Yeah, Tom. Right. Many of the Psalms do not follow the formula of the Lord's Prayer. Um, not that this is an inspired work, you know, and authoritative for us, but if you've ever read through, you know, um, the Valley of Vision that contains prayers from, from Puritans, um, you'll notice that they don't all follow the, the order of the Lord's Prayer. But certainly these, these themes that are present in the Lord's Prayer are found there as well. Yeah, I don't think we should be too wooden with this. I, I've decided to emphasize the Lord's Prayer and that pattern heavily with you as I pray in, in, in the public worship service. And as we've prayed corporately, we've used that pattern. Because I think it's important for us to learn how to do that. But that's not to say that we have to follow that pattern every time. Yeah. Okay, let's move rather quickly through section C of this book, of this section rather. Um, I ask whether you pray because there is no duty in religion so neglected as private prayer. Uh, so this was Ryle's assessment of the religious uh, culture in his day, and it's probably true today as well. Uh, as important as prayer is, there is no duty in religion so neglected as private prayer. We live in days of abounding religious profession, there are more places of public worship now than ever were before. There are more persons attending them than ever were before. I don't think we can say this of our day and age, but it was true in Ryle's day. And yet, in spite of all this public religion, I believe there is a vast neglect of private prayer. It is one of those private transactions between God and our souls which no eye sees, and therefore no one which men are tempted to pass over and leave undone. I believe that thousands never utter a word of prayer at all. They eat, they drink, they sleep, they rise, they go forth to their labor, they return to their homes. They breathe God's air, they see God's sun, they walk on God's earth, they enjoy God's mercies, they have dying bodies, they have judgment and eternity before them, but they never speak to God. They live like the beasts that perish. They behave like creatures without souls. They have not one word to say to Him in whose hand are their life and breath and all things, and from whose mouth they must one day receive their everlasting sentence. How dreadful this seems! But if the secrets of men were only known, how common, so how common this situation is. It's a beautiful and, and haunting statement, isn't it? Um, you know, this thought has occurred to me with some regularity. People will complain about the idea that we are all sinners and deserving of God's judgment and they will reason like this, I'm a pretty good person, you know, I do good works. But the thought has occurred to me over and over again, it is a great act of wickedness to live in God's world, to breathe His air, etc., etc., et and to not give Him glory. 
This is no, this is no small sin. It is a great and vile sin. Our catechism says so too, right? Uh, I wonder if you remember that uh, question in our, our, our catechism um, that asks, are all sins equally heinous? It acknowledges that no, some are worse than others. But, or even at the very beginning of our catechism, the question is asked if all men must believe that there is a God. And it is said there that it is their great sin and folly who do not. You know, it is a great sin to not acknowledge God to not give Him glory as we live in this world and breathe His air and enjoy the many blessings that He gives. Here uh, in, on page 11, uh, Ryle uh, does critique dead and lifeless prayers, or we might say loveless prayers. He says, I believe there are tens of thousands whose prayers are nothing but mere form. A set of words repeated by rote, without a thought, about their meaning. Uh, I've already told you that Ryle was an, uh, an Anglican minister. Um, that, that tradition is known for being high church, for having a detailed liturgy. And so certainly he would experience this as he ministered in the church. Uh, people would come and say the Lord's Prayer or maybe recite the Creed, but they would do so in a dead and heartless way. And of course, we have a liturgy of our own, and we do these things together. We recite the Lord's Prayer in the Creed, and I think this is a good warning for us to prepare our hearts for worship so that we don't fall into this trap of doing so in a dead, lifeless, and loveless way. Some say over a few hasty sentences picked up in the nursery when they were children. Some content themselves with repeating the creed, forgetting that there is not a request in it. I thought that was a funny little statement here. I guess some people would do this. They would recite the creed as if it were a prayer, but it's not a prayer. It's a creed, is what he's saying. Some add the Lord's Prayer, but without the slightest desire that its solemn petitions may be granted. So here he critiques dead and lifeless prayer. And then on page 12, he... uh, has this little subsection under point C uh, that is marked off by the words, Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten? And have you forgotten? Four times. Let's go through this uh, in order to conclude our time together. Have you forgotten, number one, I'm on page 12, it's the second full paragraph, that it is not natural to anyone to pray. The carnal mind is enmity against God, The desires of man's heart is to get far away from God and have nothing to do with Him. His feeling towards Him is not love but fear. Why then should a man pray when he has no real sense of sin, no real feeling of spiritual wants, no thorough belief in unseen things, no desire after holiness and heaven? Of all these things, the vast majority of men know and feel nothing. The multitude walk in the broad way. I cannot forget this, therefore I say boldly, I believe that few pray. Point two, have you forgotten that it is not fashionable to pray? Isn't this true? It is not fashionable to pray. Uh, To pray you have to be humble, and it is not fashionable to be humble. I'm quoting here Ryle again. It is one of the things that men would be rather ashamed to own. There are hundreds who would sooner storm a breach or lead a forlorn hope that confess publicly that they make a habit of prayer. There are thousands who, if obliged to sleep in the same room with a stranger, would lie down in bed without a prayer. To dress well, to go to theaters, to be thought clever and agreeable, all this is fashionable, but not to pray. 
I cannot forget this. I cannot think a habit is common which so many seem ashamed to own. I believe that few pray. We should not be ashamed to pray, uh, brothers and sisters. We should not be ashamed to pray in the congregation, in our homes, with our families, even out in public as we have opportunity. We should not be ashamed to cry out to our God and to ask Him for help and to give Him glory. Point three, have you forgotten the lives that many live? Can we really believe that people are praying against sin night and day when we see them plunging into it? Can we suppose they pray against the world when they are entirely absorbed and taken up with its pursuits? Can we think that they really ask God for grace to serve Him when they do not show the slightest desire to serve Him at all? Oh no, it is plain as daylight that the great majority of men either ask nothing of God or do not mean what they say when they do ask, which is just the same thing. Praying and sinning will never live together in the same heart. Prayer will consume sin, or sin will choke prayer. I cannot forget this. I look at men's lives. I believe that few pray. So he is giving these reasons why he believes that few pray, and one of them is the the sinful and worldly lives that men and women live in front of all. And he is saying that this cannot coexist with a, a, a fervent prayer life. Do you agree with this, brothers and sisters? Do true Christians who pray also struggle with sin? Yes. But the point is valid. A Christian, a true Christian whose life is marked by sin, will not have a life marked by prayer simultaneously. The two things really cannot go together. The two things cannot survive together in the same heart. Point four. Have you forgotten the deaths that many die? How many, when they draw near death, seem entirely strangers to God? Not only are they sadly ignorant of His gospel, but sadly wanting in the power of speaking to Him. There is a terrible awkwardness and shyness in their endeavors to approach Him. They seem to be taking up a fresh thing, a brand new thing. They appear as if they wanted an introduction to God, and as if they had never talked with Him before. I remember having heard of a lady who was anxious to have a minister to visit her in her last illness. She desired, she desired that he would pray with her. He asked her what he should pray for. She did not know and could not tell. She was utterly unable to name any one thing which she wished him to ask God for her soul. All she seemed to want was the form of a minister's prayers. I can quite understand this. Deathbeds are great revealers of secrets. I cannot forget what I have seen of sick and dying people. This also leads me to believe that few pray. Lastly, I cannot see your heart. I do not know your private history and spiritual things. But from what I can see in the Bible and in the world, I am certain I cannot ask you a more necessary question than that before you. Do you pray? A wonderful uh, exhortation from J.C. Ryle. Wouldn't you agree? Any final thoughts or questions that you'd like to bring before we conclude? Tom? Not natural to men. Yeah. 
So on the one hand, uh, you can see Ryle's point, but there also does seem to be this natural impulse to pray. We might even say this natural impulse to worship, and it manifests itself in all the cultures of the world and in many different religions. Um, I, see, I see the distinction you're making there, Tom, and I think it's a valid one. Uh, we have to remember, though, that Ryle is ministering, again, to a, a, a quote-unquote Christian culture filled with lots of nominalism, lots of, heart, of heartless people. And so he's describing what he sees there, uh, that men um, are not naturally running to God. And, and also, I think another distinction that we can make is that uh, men do not naturally run to the one true God in prayer through faith in Jesus Christ, the only mediator between God and man. They fear Him. And so they're comfortable praying to their idols, and there's a difference. They're comfortable praying to the gods that they have made for themselves. They do not fear their idols because their idols are dumb and powerless. They made them. And so they can pray to them in order to try to manipulate them. But to come before God Almighty, the one and true God, who is eternally glorious and infinitely powerful, they fear that God and run from Him and hate Him. I think that's Ryle's point. And so, yes, we do see um, people praying all over the world but they are praying to idols, they are praying to demons, uh, and they do not fear them. Uh, they love them instead. Yes? I think there's a lot of false prayers through these other religions, and people are praying to justify their own humanly desires and interests to further their uh, yeah. Well, the Old Testament especially has a lot to say about idolatry. And the idols are mocked in the Old Testament often. uh, And the people who worship and serve idols are are rebuked for their folly. And if you think about idolatry, one one of the essential characteristics of it is that men make idols so as to avoid exposure and contact with the one true God. Case in point... Um, the thing that the people did when Moses was up on the mountain. (laughs) He comes down to find them worshiping a golden calf, something more comfortable to them, something they can control. So, uh, I understand the distinction, Tom. I think it's, it's a good observation. Men have this natural impulse to worship, and a part of worship is certainly prayer, but they do not worship the one true God. Instead, they find a way to worship a created thing instead, either some thing in this creation or some idol that they have made themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. No, Tom, when I hear you say you looked it up on Google, I, I hear you saying you were curious to know kind of what the world thinks about prayer and what people commonly say about prayer. And that's what you'll get on Google. That's what you'll get from AI, too. It'll be a, um, <laughs> an expression of the world, um, uh, a worldview brought to you. So, uh, yeah, very good. Let, brothers and sisters, I mean, I've, I've read most of this to you. You probably read ahead of time, but I just, this is a different approach. Um, I wanted to try it. Uh, But let us be sure to slow down with this book and to really think about these 
simple but, but really piercing and powerful questions that are being asked of us. Are we people of prayer? Do you pray? As a child of God, do you pray? You certainly ought to pray if you've been reconciled to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit. Let's pray now and then we will prepare our hearts for corporate worship. Father in heaven, do help us to pray. If we do not have the desire to pray, I ask that you would give it to us, O Lord. Father, if we do have the desire to pray, I pray that we would do so regularly and well. And God, that you would be glorified in this. Uh, Lord, increase our, our private time of prayer with you, O Lord. I pray that you would increase it as it pertains to the amount of time spent, but also in the quality of time spent. May we learn as your children to truly come before you, to come before the throne of grace in Jesus' name, and to commune with you, to give you worship, to give you praise, to bring our requests to you, O God. Teach us to do this, O Lord. Warm our hearts to you, so that we might be more blessed and that you might be more glorified. It's the name of Christ we pray. Amen.